Christopher Gofford is the LA Times journalist behind Dirty John, the riveting true crime podcast that has topped the iTunes charts for weeks. Dirty John is the multi-generational story of one family dealing with a dangerous con man and with a difficult past that informs their decisions. Inspired by old radio shows, this is the first time Christopher has brought his writing to life with recorded interviews, music, and his own voice. Christopher is also the author of Framed, a six-part series about the framing of a PTA mom in the super-safe suburbia of Irvine, California. As part of a team, Christopher was a 2011 Pulitzer Prize winner and two-time nominee. He is also the author of two books, You Will See Fire, A Search for Justice in Kenya, and Snitch Jacket, a crime novel. Christopher is a true journalist, a caring, curious person who never stops asking questions. He even had some for me. I'm your host, CWS, and this is Behind True Crime. Behind True Crime is presented by Hunt a Killer, the monthly murder mystery subscription box service. Check them out at huntakiller.com. So we're here with Christopher Gofford, who is the journalist behind Dirty John. How are you doing, Christopher? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on here. Uh, I got to say, not only did I love the podcast, I love your voice for radio. Uh, thank you. I've got a great face for radio as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. Okay, so I'm interested in how you became involved in reporting on crime. And then also, how did that then develop into this more storytelling approach that you have? Because you're not exactly just reporting. You are pulling characters. You're, you're creating a story that is a lot more engaging than just reading an article. And so in addition to that... What also are like the first crimes or mysteries you're interested in? I heard that a lot of your desire to do radio came from old-time radio dramas as well. So could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I started out as a cop reporter. Uh, my first really serious uh, job in daily journalism was as a police reporter for a little newspaper in Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, called The Daily Pilot. Uh, and I allude to that job at the very beginning of uh, the podcast in episode one, where I talk about there not being a lot of murders in uh, in Newport Beach. Uh, it's a pretty peaceful place, but uh, when you do have them, they tend to be strange and, and interesting. And the Daily Pilot is really where I cut my teeth. I think I covered cops and courts for a year and a half, um, writing sometimes two, three stories a day just learning uh, the nuts and bolts of the craft, learning how to interview people, spending a lot of time in the courthouse. Uh, the culmination of my time there at the Daily Pilot was a series I did about a, uh, a carpet installer named Eric Wayne Bennett who had uh, murdered a woman and raped another and was on death row. And I caught the very end of his sentencing at the Orange County Courthouse in Santa Ana and wrote him a letter and uh, got a reply saying, come up and visit me. And I, I went up to death row in San Quentin and he gave me a, a full and detailed confession, which became uh, the basis for a multi-part series. Um, and I think it was on the basis of that or the strength of that uh, series that I managed to get a job at the St. Petersburg Times in Florida. And they, they put me in a in a county called Pasco, um, Pasco County, which is uh, a little north of uh, St. Petersburg, and I covered cops and courts, and it was a, a fascinating and strange place. I remember one of the first court cases I ever covered 
in the uh, in the Pasco County Courthouse, there was a guy um, being charged with murder. He was on trial for murder. He the murder was uh, basically a pistol whipping that turned into a um, a bullet to the head in a trailer park in uh, a city called Hudson. And the guy who was on trial, he was sitting there. Behind him, he had family members, and he had um, he had a 17-year-old girlfriend blowing him kisses. And on the other side of the courtroom, I remember uh, it looked a lot lonelier. There was one woman there. She was in her 50s, and she was sitting all alone. Um, and she was stroking a uh, an object that sat to her uh, her left on the bench, and it was inside her purse. She had a tan purse, and she kept stroking it, and there was a crackling sound coming from it. And I, I went over and sat beside her, and I said, "Excuse me, uh, I'm with the paper. Are you uh, related to one of the parties?" And uh, she says, "Yes, I'm the uh, I'm the victim's mother, and uh, and this is George." And uh, she showed me that she had uh, she had eight pounds of her son's ashes there in the uh, in the courtroom um, that she was talking to uh, that she managed to uh, to bring through the uh, the security machine every morning. Um, and when it came time to uh, to speak to the court, she she put her fist into the uh, into the bag of ashes and um, held them up and denounced the killer. And I remember she left her fingerprints uh, on the lectern when she left. And uh, it was like stumbling into a Flannery O'Connor story. And uh, who, by the who, by the way, is one of my favorite writers. You know, she said she's like some people say, why do you write about these things? And I quote Flannery O'Connor. I say, uh, you know, it is in the extremity of evil circumstances that the possibilities of grace are most nearly apprehended. I think I'm probably mangling the quote a little bit, but um, that was her thinking about it, and, uh, and so I'm I'm attracted to this sort of uh, this sort of material, you know, the the darker side of human psychology. It reminds me of the quote that you had in Dirty John, and I'm gonna also probably butcher this quote, but it's something about meeting someone like this being the reverse of a religious experience. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what this lawyer John Jallo said. He, he you know, John Meehan made an impression on him that stuck with him for years and years. And uh, I think he actually called him evil incarnate. Um, and uh, the guy the guy left an impression on Jalo and a lot of other people. There was a cop I interviewed who said he was the most uh, the most devious pe- the most devious person he'd uh, he'd ever dealt with in his forty years as a cop. And I don't think you can look at even a fraction of what John Meehan did and um, come to a conclusion other than he was some kind of sociopath. So can you give us, and obviously this will entail giving away some of the stories, so if that's something that our listeners don't want to hear, I would recommend listening to Dirty John before listening to this podcast, but could you give us just the briefest synopsis of what Dirty John was about um, in terms of the story. Yeah, well, uh, it starts with a, uh, a woman in Orange County, California, Deborah Newell. Uh, she's a very successful interior designer, and um, she's going on dating sites looking for, 
looking for a partner, and she finds this guy, John Meehan, who seems to fit the bill. He's handsome, he's charming, and uh, he says, I uh, am an anesthesiologist. I put people to sleep for a living. That's his joke. And he says he's just back from Doctors Without Borders in Iraq, where he's been He's been working, he's got houses in Palm Springs and Newport Beach, and he's uh, single-mindedly, um, uh, I mean, he's, he, he dotes on her. He's, um, he showers her with attention, and he tells her within uh, a couple of dates that he loves her and that he needs to be married to her. He can't survive another day unless he's married to her. Her family sees some red flags. Her daughter, Jacqueline, uh, doesn't like the way his eyes are roaming around their, their apartment. Um, she thinks he dresses sloppily and looks like he might be homeless. Um, and uh, after, after a few weeks, uh, he succeeds in pressuring her into marrying him. They run off to Vegas and they get married. And she doesn't tell her family because she knows they'll be, uh, they'll be upset. Um, but the daughter, Jacqueline, begins... Uh, tracking John's movement. She puts a magnetic tracker on mom's Tesla and she begins monitoring where John is going. And this only increases the mystery about who he is and uh, what his intentions are. So that's the basis of it. You learn all of that. And uh, I think you learn all of that in the first episode. So I'm not spoiling too much. How did you stumble onto this story? Well, this, this raises uh, another spoiler. Um, I could say that the death of uh, one of the central characters brought it to the attention of uh, a colleague of mine at the Daily Pilot who brought it to my attention, and then a, a prosecutor I know who's a good source um, said, hey, we've been looking into this fascinating case, and um, we're not going to file charges, although if I say that, I've given something away, haven't I? Um, we're, 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 we're not going to file charges, but that means the case is going to open up and you can get, uh, the autopsy report and, uh, you can get other investigative documents. And that opened a lot of doors, um, because prior to that, uh, the authorities weren't talking about the case at all, but that was, that was the, uh, that was the beginnings of it. Dirty John is also about the Newell family, Deborah Newell and her two daughters, Jacqueline and Tara. And I'm I'm wondering, what is it like to be so entrenched in a family like this? Because it, it's you're also telling a multi-generational story about almost like almost the I'm trying to put it into words, almost the emotional landscape of an entire family. So what is it like to become so intimate with a family like that? Well, uh, you have a lot of responsibility because uh, these are these are um, very personal things that they're talking about, and uh, they entrusted me with uh, with a story about the most traumatic thing that uh, that had happened to them. Certainly to Tara. No, I mean it's a to answer your question, it's a huge responsibility because they're entrusting you with their story. And uh, it took many months to uh, to win their trust in some cases. Some people in the family would not talk to me uh, and never would and still won't. Um, but uh, Deborah approached it with the idea that this would help uh, other women in similar situations, which I think is uh, commendable and, uh, and brave of her. 
Um, and uh, she's been getting some criticism uh, online, a lot of which is, uh, I think, mean-spirited. But I think, uh, I think she did a brave thing. And if it helps some people recognize the signs of uh, domestic abuse and manipulation, then, uh, then it's a good thing. And uh, Tara wanted her story told also. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't pay anybody for their stories. The LA Times does not pay people for their cooperation. And I don't have subpoena power the way an attorney would. So um, their cooperation with a project like this is strictly voluntary. So you also wrote a very in-depth piece about another, I'll call white-collar crime, um, call, and it's called Framed. And it was a, a several-part installment for the L.A. Times. Could you tell us, assuming, again, that it's all right to use a few spoilers, um, could you give us the story the basic story behind Framed, because although it's different, it has some similar themes at the core of it. Well, this is another story that takes place in uh, Orange County. Framed takes place in a city called uh, Irvine, which is uh, the master plan utopia of, uh, of Orange County with uh, the lowest crime rate for any city its size in the country. Um, and... Uh, it starts out with a woman named Kelly Peters, who is a PTA mom and a volunteer at an Irvine school, and she's hauled out of uh, an after-school program where she's volunteering, and the police are there. They find uh, drugs in her car, and she begs and pleads with the cops, tries to make them understand that the drugs are not hers. There are some pain pills and some marijuana, and uh, she says, uh, I have no idea how these things got here. Please, please, please don't arrest me. Um, I have an enemy. And uh, the policeman, to his credit, um, did not bring her in, did not, did not arrest her, and uh, found enough, enough holes in the, um, in the story as presented uh, by the, uh, the tipster who alerted him to the, uh, to the drugs in the car that he decided to do some more digging. And... The story, uh, the story takes you on the, uh, takes you through the investigation, and it leads to uh, a pair of lawyers who live down the block, um, Kent Easter and uh, Jill Easter, um, who have law degrees from some of the best schools in the country. And uh, uh, it turns out that they were angry at Kelly Peters because uh, a year earlier, their uh, their son had been inadvertently um, locked out of the school during some kind of afternoon uh, activity, and they waged a campaign to get Kelly Peters uh, ousted from the school as a volunteer. And the school said, no, she's our best volunteer. We're keeping her. And they, uh, they escalated it and escalated it to the point where, uh, to get back at her, they, uh, they planted drugs. And... Um, I came across the story because uh, I was at the courthouse one day. I like to hang out there uh, at the courthouse in Santa Ana. Um, and the tag end of a civil trial involving Kent Easter uh, was happening. And I saw him in the, uh, in the hallway. And he was about to go in front of a civil jury and basically beg them not to take uh, what little he had left. You know, his name had been tarnished by this. Uh, his law license had been suspended. 
Um, and he said, look, I don't have a lot left to lose. And he had no more money, he said, for a lawyer to defend him. So he was standing up there at the podium uh, by himself facing this jury. Um, and the jury, the jury sided against him and gave Kelly Peters millions and millions of dollars. Um, although I don't know the status on, uh, on how much of that, if any, has been paid. Uh, I just don't know that that was, that was, I want to say a couple of years ago now. So that's how, that's how that happened. So what is the difference then? Because in Dirty John, um, you are not speaking directly with someone who is um, accused or found guilty of any kind of a crime. But in Framed, you do interview Kent Easter, who was uh, found guilty of planting drugs in Kelly Peters' uh, in her car. So is what's that like for you? What's the difference between just talking to fam- family members who are victims versus talking to someone who also is the perpetrator of a, of a crime like that? Well, I've got a, a wealth of uh, emails and uh, texts and other things uh, in John's voice, John Meehan's voice, uh, to draw from to give you a strong sense of what the guy was like and what it was like to be on the receiving end of some of his nastiness. Um, and I have to say the part of the podcast uh, which I enjoyed doing the least was uh, reading his uh reading his emails and his texts uh, aloud because I, I had to kind of channel the guy in a way that gave you a sense of um, just how nasty he was, but I did not like for one minute to step into his skin. And you might sense that discomfort when you listen to it. I don't know. Yeah, I think I sense it a little bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not upset that we didn't hear all of the, the details of his correspondence. Yeah, by the way, those are carefully edited, carefully selected, because they get, I mean, they get much nastier. I mean, imagine, imagine, uh, imagine how nasty the ones were that I read, and the, I mean, the ones I didn't read are uh, just, uh, they're jaw-dropping in their malevolence. just a quick break here. Um, I wanted to send a big thank you to Hunt a Killer for letting me host this podcast that allows me to talk with such amazing people. So Hunt a Killer has been called the blue apron for people who are obsessed with murder. Uh, it's a monthly murder mystery subscription box service that sends correspondence from their killer curator, who's like this Hannibal Lecter type, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. Each month you'll receive new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, and they're all aiding in this ongoing murder mystery and investigation. It's up to you to solve it, along with the thousands of other members who are working together in online communities. It's the perfect thing for an armchair detective looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging on to huntakiller.com and applying for membership. They're growing so fast that they have to limit new members. But once you're approved, you'll get a private link to subscribe. Then a package ships out immediately. You don't even have to wait. They've been featured in BuzzFeed, Fastco, and Bustle. Huntakiller is forming this cult-like community, and they're all just so obsessed. So if you love poring over clues, ciphers, and codes, Huntakiller is perfect. And if it's not for you, I have a feeling you know at least one person that would love to receive it as a gift. And to support the show, Huntakiller has also offered a 10% discount to our listeners. So if you use the code BEHIND, you'll get 10% off your first order. That's huntakiller.com, code BEHIND. 
I mean, speaking from my own personal experience just in my life, I I am close to someone who is nowhere near as bad as Dirty John, but who has this the same inability to take responsibility, the same um, volatile personality where you challenge them and you're done. They will destroy you even over the smallest thing, which uh, is also made clear from the similar personality, not at all the same degree of severity in Framed, but there is this, I mean, in Framed, the only the only transgression that that uh, Peters made was leaving the sun outside, um, the Easter sun outside, which is definitely something to be upset about because you're, you know, it's your child. But then it was the saying that the sun was slow to get inside that then was interpreted by the Easters as we, or at least we think it was interpreted that they call or that that Peters called um, the sun slow when that was when all that she meant was that he was physically slow to get inside, not that he was unintelligent. And so it was that that small, tiny thing that that set off his personality to kind of concoct a year long revenge scheme over something so small. So is there something that in your personal life and not to get too personal, but did you have a connection to sort of taking issue with this type of a personality and wanting to help people understand how to deal with it? I mean, we've all encountered uh, narcissists, right? We've all encountered uh, people who uh, cannot forgive a slight or a perceived slight. Um, but I think in, in the case of uh, John Meehan, uh, there was something way beyond uh, ordinary human psychology at work. This is a guy who... Um, this is a guy who seemed to exist only to inflict pain. Uh, I don't know. If, I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and I, I don't want to over dramatize it. Um, but the guy, the guy seemed incapable of any real human connection, and he seemed not even to have much of a game plan with some of his victims beyond using them and uh, and tormenting them. I mean, I've gotten some calls from people who knew him, who dated him. I think I've talked to three or four of his ex-girlfriends after the uh, after the series ran. Um, they called me and said, hey, I knew this guy. I dated this guy. He ruined my life. Or in one case, I talked to a woman who dated him in the early 80s. She was 20 and he was 22. And uh, what was amazing is even then, uh, he was uh, running this con where he would show up at the bank where she worked uh, as a teller. He would show up in uh, medical scrubs, and he would say uh, that he was a student at Stanford Medical School. He was probably an orderly at some local hospital or something like that. But he wore this costume, and he projected authority, and he talked a good talk. And uh, he began dating this woman, and she never learned the truth about him. But uh, then he left her abruptly. And uh, she was always kind of uh, wounded and puzzled by this. When she read my series, uh, she said she, uh, she recognized him, and she almost wanted to throw up. And uh, uh, she's, you know, she agrees that um, this guy disappearing from her life before he did any further damage was probably uh, dodging a bullet. I like to think that it's a cautionary tale, you know, I like to think that um, I like this, I like to think that some people will, will hear this podcast or they'll read the series 
and they will uh, get some inkling of, uh, of how a predator like this works on your mind and how he preys on your insecurities and how he'll say the right things and he'll lavish you with attention and affection and um, present to you what looks like love but is really, really the twisted imitation of it um, and is really a, a dark... Uh, pack that he's asking you to sign on, you know. He's giving you what you think you need in the form of um, unconditional affection and adoration, but really he's asking you to isolate yourself from your family. He's asking you to surrender that which is dearest to you, which is the company of your family, your kids, your grandkids. But it's so, it's something much darker that they're really offering you, you know. They're giving you what looks like the, the holy grail, which is true love, Which, but it's it's really, uh, it's really a cup of poison, you know? Yeah. And I think that for me, that's kind of the, the lingering, the sentiment, right? At the very, very end of Dirty John where um, Deborah says, uh, doesn't he look happy when she's watching the old foot or the footage of them getting married? Do you think that John Meehan or people that are as extreme in personality as John Meehan can feel? Is there anything at the core of that that is genuine or do you think it's all a con? I mean, I'm not I'm not him, so I can't I can't say, but uh, he seemed to be capable of no emotion other than uh anger, uh, and, uh, a thirst for, um, the humiliation of his enemies and, uh, I guess a narcissism, a self-love. I don't, yeah, I mean, you look into this guy's past and you think, what is it that, uh, that warped him? You know, where did he go off the rails? Why, why this guy? Why this guy? It's hard to, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. There's nothing in his past. He wasn't. He wasn't physically abused, according to the sisters. He wasn't. Um, you know, the victim of a traumatic brain injury or anything like that, as the prosecutor says at the end. Um, the closest I ever came to a moment that would be akin to, uh, like the rosebud moment in Citizen Kane, you know, with the sled, where you go, uh, this is. This is where this guy's life went off the rails. Is uh, John Meehan kept a picture of his grandparents' home, all the other stuff he threw away during his uh, his uh, his decades shuttling between jail cells and uh, and and states. He kept this black and white framed picture of his grandparents' uh, house where he spent some happy years as a kid. And I guess he looked back on this. His sister tells me. Uh, as the last time uh, he enjoyed some kind of uh, some kind of innocence. So even that, though, what does that tell you? What does that really tell you about what made this guy who he is? It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you that much at all. I mean, he's got that dad, right? The he's kind of got a con man dad, who taught him the ways of of conning people. Yeah, but so do a lot of people. That's true. It's not enough to account for the rest of his... It, it would account maybe for being a con man, but there are people that con people without being so sadistic as right. well. Right, yeah. right. I mean, I would have liked to see a brain scan of this guy. Oof, I'm sure you're not the only one. Yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he had the, uh, 
the, the neurological makeup of a, of a sociopath. You know? Yeah. So what do you think draw? I mean, I know what draws you to this case because you've talked about it. What do you think draws the public to cases like this? Why do you think we want to hear about about these types of stories? I'd like to hear your opinion on that, Chelsea. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I know that I'm drawn. I actually just wrote a piece. You guys can read it if you want on the Hunter Killer blog. And it's about um, kind of dealing with these narcissistic personalities in our lives um, as extreme as John Meehan down to the people that you know that just can't uh, take responsibility for their actions and just can't really you can't really have in your life after a certain point. So I'm I I always want to know so that I can I want to hear about these people because I've got this deep-seated desire to to save them. And I don't think that that's – I think that that is the basic psychology of people that pair up with these types of personalities, right? They want to be the person who can take this wayward person and, and help them. And um, as I – as I move forward in my in my crime writing, it sometimes you realize that actually maybe that isn't possible, and people like John Meehan may not be um, they may not have redemption in their future. And uh, so then, when it's a story like this, where you have the person ending up being taken down by someone as sweet as Tara, that is a justice that. I definitely felt and felt good about because at the end of a lot of true crime podcasts, you don't feel like you don't feel vindicated. You feel like you've listened and you want to understand what happened, but the victims are so many or they're already gone. And in this case, you actually got to see a story of someone as as sweet and 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 demure and kind as Tara be the the hero that took down this this man that again I don't like to speak in black and white either but just evil just very little inside of him that had any ability to be redeemed so that's uh, that's why I like dirty John yeah that's all that's that's all that's all well put um I'll just go with that <laughs> you like that all right all right answering the question for you nobody ever asked me questions on the show that's nice thank you <laughs> um yeah, and I mean, I think I don't think I'm alone in that. I think we're drawn to psych- a lot of people ask me why I'm interested in true crime and act like it's like there's something wrong with me or that I'm weird or that, you know, there's that it means something about me, but really I think it means if you can look at the dark things of the world, then you almost have a responsibility to because some people can't. And it doesn't mean they're going to go away if we turn away from them. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, uh I, I mean, I've said this uh, elsewhere, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the true crime uh, label. Not that I blame anybody for calling it true crime, but in a certain sense, um, it conditions people to expect a certain thing uh, that I don't necessarily uh, feel obliged to, uh, to deliver, you know? Like, true crime can encompass everything from the most lurid paperbacks stuffed with gory photos in the middle uh, in the true crime section of the uh, of the bookstore on the one end to works of, uh, of art like uh, The Executioner's Song uh, or In Cold Blood, you know, um, those are those are those are the extremes of true crime. And then there's everything in between. Um, 
but I like to think of it as a uh, as a story about human beings that has some of the trappings of true of true crime. You know, a story of a story of a story of human psychology um, that hinges on the actions of uh, of a criminal and his victims. But you know, I said the same thing. Uh, I said the same thing when my novel Snitch Jacket came out. Uh, man, it must have been about ten years now. Uh, people called it a crime novel, um, and I guess it is because it deals with uh, criminals. Um, but I like to think of it as a uh, as a character study that happens to be um, wrapped in the trappings of uh, of a crime novel. So in Snitch Jacket, are the the characters, are they based on a lot of your own experiences with actual people then? Yes. In fact, it emerged from a real case that I covered. And uh, I, this is back when I was a reporter for the Daily Pilot. There was a, a murder for hire case that I was covering um, that the Costa Mesa police had foiled. And they arrested this guy who they described as a career criminal and uh, they had him in the Orange County Jail, and I went to, uh, to interview him. And uh, my experience with that guy um, gave rise to this novel, and it became the repository for all of these notes I'd been taking in all of the courtrooms and um, uh, squad cars that I'd been hanging out in um, for months and months. It became the place where I put all the snatches of dialogue that I'd overheard and written down that I couldn't put into my newspaper work. So yeah, so my novel, um, my my novel emerged directly from my uh, from my newspaper work, but I could do a lot of uh, a lot of fun and interesting things with it once I was no longer uh, tethered to the facts, as opposed to Dirty John and Frame, which are works of journalism. There's a sharp, there's a sharp, sharp distinction in my mind. Um, when I've got my journalist hat on for the LA Times, uh, every fact is uh, is reported and um, sourceable. I mean, I've been getting emails from people going, "Hey, are these people real or are they actors?" And I'm going, "No, they're they're real people." As I explain in the podcast, you know, they're uh, they're who they say they are. Deborah Newell speaking as Deborah Newell, and I am me, and uh, everybody is who they claim to be. Um, and and uh, you know they're not. We didn't go out and hire actors to do this. This is a this is a this is a work of journalism. Well, and I guess that speaks to just how um, incredible the story really is. That <laughs> it's it's one of those facts stranger than fiction situations. Because I don't know if you could come up with this in a fictional in a fictional story. It's just so. Well, they wouldn't. They wouldn't believe it if exactly. You did. <laughs> they wouldn't. So, um, we d- we were just talking about true crime, um, and I know what you mean. I, I can't. People are either completely fascinated when I say that I'm in that business, or they're completely turned off by me and want to go across the room and talk to somebody else. So, what <laughs> what do you think about? Like, do you have examples? I mean, you gave a couple, but what can true crime do? positively if we're going to ignore the parts that we don't like what can it do in terms of of informing and helping and and creating new conversations well in this case i hope it raises awareness about something called uh, coercive control which i didn't know 
much about at all when I got into this, but this is a form of psychological manipulation in which one partner doesn't necessarily use uh, physical force or uh, physical abuse to, uh, to control the other. It may, be, it may take the form of gaslighting. It may take the form of, you know, which is an assault on somebody's perception of reality. Uh, which is what happened here, you know, ignore all, ignore the mountain of evidence uh, with my name on it, uh, ignore the restraining orders uh, with my name on it, ignore my criminal history. That was another John Meehan, you know, that's, uh, that's a form of gaslighting and that's uh, coercive control. Um, there are, and there are other ways to do it, uh, surveilling, surveilling your partner, um, hacking into their bank account. These are all ways that people control one another uh, uh, non-violently, but in a, in a very insidious way. And if this raises some awareness about that, then I think I think it's done some good. And it seems like this this form of of control and manipulation is is just obviously, I mean, literally not visible, right? And so I think that these types of abusers know not to physically harm their victims because it gives, you know, them the ability to talk to the police and it gives their family members a a more concrete way to say, oh, you've got to go. But we're just not as well-versed in the idea of emotional abuse. Yeah, and part of what was... uh... Uh, frightening about John Meehan is he always went right up to the line um, uh, before pulling back. Um, Not always, but uh, a lot of the time. A lot of the time. For example, one of the women I heard from, uh, one of his exes who called me uh, after the series ran, said that uh, he terrorized her. She tried to leave him, and um, he made it his mission to destroy her life, right? He he calls the Better Business Bureau and uh, reports her. He uh, maligns her to her bosses as an alcoholic. He does all these things to destroy her. And um, he stalks her. And she goes to a judge and she takes out a restraining order. The judge gives her a five-year, 500-feet uh, restraining order. And um, afterwards, she looks out the window. And there is uh, John Meehan just beyond the 500-foot boundary. Uh, in the street uh, at his car. Um, that is a guy who is uh, taking some pleasure, I think, in, um, in terrorizing his victims and, and, uh, and a guy who's willing to go right up to the edge um, in pursuit of that. That's very scary. Just yeah, standing I'd right at the so. 500. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I don't even, there's not even words really for what that is. It's just, it, it's like a horror movie. It's all, it's, you know, it's that fact, that fact scarier than fiction feeling. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if he had measured the distance very carefully and put a little chalk, chalk mark there. I mean, I don't know that he did that, but that's, that's the type of thing you can imagine him doing. So do you think, Outside of outside of creating awareness for people who who might be victims of this, do you, can you think of any way that we might, as a society, and as like uh, in terms of laws and and ways that we can prevent this type of behavior, like stalking laws? Is there anything you can point to that that could be easily changed to make these situations better for victims? Well, you know, in the UK, coercive control is. Uh is already a, uh, a crime. If you engage in this sort of behavior, 
uh, with that level of uh, psychological control and manipulation, you can be prosecuted for it. Um, in the United States, uh, not so. If you look at what happens in uh, episode five, Deborah Newell tries to get a restraining order against uh, John Meehan. And her lawyer lists this uh, catalog of outrages and horrors that the guy's been guilty of um, in, uh, in multiple states over the course of decades. And uh, it wasn't enough because he hadn't actually hurt her physically and because he was living in another state and wasn't perceived as an immediate threat. So uh, it's, it's very possible to be in a, an extremely scary situation like this and not necessarily have uh, a lot of recourse uh, in the law. It's just so illogical because these things always build, right? They always, they always build to, to worse and worse situations. And so it's, just, it's very strange to me that there is nothing preventative in our laws that stop, that stop this kind of escalation. Well, some of it depends on the judge, too, you know. Sure. Um, the woman I, uh, I told you about who, uh, who got the restraining order, which kept him 500 feet away, I mean, she seemed to have uh, much less trouble getting one. Um, and I don't think he had physically harmed her either. So some of it, some of it, is, uh, some of it seems to be a roll of the... Of, of the dice in terms of what judge you get and how responsive he, the judge is to, uh, to what's going on. How about, do you, can you give us some of your favorite um, maybe podcasts or books or anything that revolves around, I won't say true crime, but around crime? Oh, I mean, The Executioner Song is probably my favorite book. It's definitely in the top five. And anybody who hasn't read it, this is Norman Mailer's, uh, I think it's about a thousand pages, um, Norman Mailer's uh, account of uh, the Gary Gilmore saga. Uh, this is the killer who uh, insisted that the state of Utah execute him um, back in the 80s. And uh, if you haven't read that book, it's just an, it's an astonishment. Although, um, in some ways, it blurs the line between uh, nonfiction and the novel. Um, but that is, that is one of my all time favorite books. It's uh, it's a masterpiece. And I think Norman Mailer's best book, um, in cold blood is, uh, is another book that means a lot to me. Although some of the, uh, reporting techniques, uh, have been justifiably called into question, uh, in, in the years since it's come out, you probably could not get away with a lot of what Truman Capote got away with. Uh, in putting it together, um, but those those to me are uh, two of the two of the pillars. So I know you're not positive what you're going to be doing next, but do you have any hope of doing another podcast, or do you want to go back to just doing strict journalism? Do you want to write another novel? Where where does your passion lie right now? I'd like to do it all. It all depends on the project and what organic form uh, it wants to take. I, I, I want to do all of the things that you mentioned. Well, that's a good answer. And I think that we will definitely be paying attention to whatever you do next. So thank you so much, Christopher, for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. And I so appreciate the care and consideration you put into your work. So thank you.
Thank you for saying so. And I want to give my uh, my email address in case anybody wants to uh, to shoot me a story tip. Oh, please. Uh, if that's okay. It's uh, Christopher.Gofford, G-O-F-F-A-R-D, at LATimes.com. Did you guys like the episode today? You could do us a huge favor by going over to iTunes and liking and subscribing and sharing and leaving us a review. Do whatever you have to do. Help us spread the word. Get a banner up on your local interstate bridge if you have to. Help us out. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I sure am. Have a great day. Behind True Crime is sponsored, funded, and produced by Hunt a Killer, the monthly murder mystery subscription box service. Check them out at huntakiller.com. James Prow does our music. Jake Weholt helped produce this episode. And thank you to research assistant Riley Smith and special correspondent Lane Keniston. Again, I'm your host, CWS, and this was Behind True Crime. Join us next time. <laughs>